Guys, welcome to the Plant Podcast. This is going to be something new, something that I haven't done personally before. Um, but we just wanted to say good day, welcome anyone who's going to come and listen. Uh, we're going to probably start things off with a bit of an introduction on what the Plant Podcast is going to be about, a bit of an intro on Matt Leg, a bit of an intro about me telling you a bit of background in my story. Um, but just to probably get things started, I think we want to maybe go into a little bit about what Plant Podcast will be about, a bit of the reasons as to why, uh, the things that we're going to shed some light on, talk about some of the stuff we don't even know about ourselves, but we just want to open up the conversation. Um, so Matt, I wanted to, uh, let's, let's kick things off and just maybe talk about a little bit about the reasons as to why we're here, what we're going to do and what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're in an amazing phase of learning so much. Um, we're in this amazing phase of learning a lot about the microbiome and a lot about the microbes that live inside us. And it's giving us some insights about what it means to be a human being. Um, like, for perspective, we have very little... We have a 100 times the genetic load within our gut. We have so much more genetic potential coming from our microbiome. For perspective, you know, the human genome being... 22,000 genes, um, a rice plant being 65,000. We have half a genetic potential of rice um, without our microbiome. Crazy. We get over 3 million genes coming from the genome in our microbiome that adds to the genomes in our body. And that's what makes us the superorganisms that have become a human being. So now that we understand that, we understand that what makes us what we are, health or disease, revolves around an amalgamation of our genetic potential along with our genetic load from our microbes that interact with the foods that we eat within our environment. Mm. And that holistic system determines whether we're in a state of survival or thriving, you yeah. know? And so that's the difference between us being half the genetic potential of a rice sure. or being a superhuman that it means that we can achieve amazing things. Yeah. And we're all superhuman beings and super organisms in one way or another like for example you as an elite athlete and that sort of stuff for me i'm not an elite athlete but my microbiome can allow me to do all other stuff that helps with my brain and everything sure. like that so finding all of our strengths and weaknesses we can learn so much from our microbiome and our environment mm. and see if we can hit and maximize our potential and they're the things that we're going to be able to dis uh, to share. Yeah. And the reason why I said like we don't know everything, and like we are in such an amazing boom of knowledge, so we have this ability at the moment now to keep our fingers on the pulse and then mm. share information with you in the form of concepts or hypotheses, even mm. before they're proven or disproven, because this is just the information learning. Mm. Well, I think as well on top of that, um, getting stuck into things that are just hot topic. Um, getting into the microbiome, how that functions, what's in there, what does it do, how does it affect the way that we think, how does it affect the way that we perform, what does it do to our immune system, like is that our immune system, is that where it starts, is that the basis? Um, but not only that, but we can also share insights on personal experience and for me I can share insights on what I've picked up over the last 10 years of com being a competitive athlete, specifically in CrossFit, um, share some stories, share some things that worked really well, share some things that didn't work well, things like mistakes I made. And I think that's a really cool aspect as well. It's just like sharing the mistakes just as much as the wins because then, you know, people can take that, put it into practice. And, you know, if, if you get one thing out of 
each time we sit down and have a have a have a chit chat, which these are going to be really light hearted chit chats talking yeah. about all things education and experience. Um, I think then you're going to walk away with a bunch of wins there. But one thing that you just mentioned that was quite fascinating that I actually haven't even thought about was when you said disease, yeah. this ease. Yeah. I've never even <laughs> contemplated in my mind that it was, you know, that type of term yeah. kind of related to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've always pronounced things weirdly like that just yeah. to get people thinking. But as a naturopath, I mean, I've been a naturopath for almost 25 years. I don't know, 96 or something like that is when I got the thing. Well, this would be a good segue yeah. to tell us a little bit about you personally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so a naturopath for... I don't know, 20 to 25 years um, working with people. Um, and in my naturopath clinic, you know, you'd work with everyone, okay? So the chief medical officer of every household, most of your customers, you know, the yep. mums and that sort of stuff mm -hmm. that are looking after themselves, their family and friends. Um, but you've everyone. I used to do a lot of um, work with men as well, which was rare for the naturopath stuff. But also I started specialising a lot in athletes. Mm. I started doing a lot of work with racehorses yep. and greyhounds and then yep. I started doing athletes. And I was really curious about... You know, trialing, which is why greyhounds and racehorses and that were excellent because they timed everything. And then with the athletes, I started doing a lot with swimmers first because the swimmers had less variables. Sure. And what I realised, there was, in most people, whether you're um, an executive or a domestic executive or whether you're an elite athlete, in my experience, a lot of people, I found they got much better results by removing handbrakes than mm. trying to motivate them to push the throttle harder. Mm. And so what I found is a lot of people are out there trying. A lot of people are out there are having a crack. They're doing their thing. And in fact, sometimes it's a matter of removing the handbrake so these people can just get a little bit more results from their efforts. Mm. It's not just go harder or something like that. That mentality of all or nothing, you know, go harder. It's if you're not getting results, it's your lack of intensity mm. and stuff. I, I started realizing that was just so wrong. Mm. Um, and so what I worked out in my naturopath clinic, it's like, consistency is more important like doing a little bit of something every day that's why i was so impressed with one of the things when i first met you and you're talking about the work in mm. of the day as opposed to the work out of the day and how important it is to work in these balance that can help to remove the handbrakes so sometimes just pushing the throttles just worse yeah well um, for me that i found the work inside of things got introduced to me i would say to be around about 2015 16 was the work-in portion would just maximise the result that I'd get in the workout. Like working out, you can't go without it. You have to do it for sure. But for me, I always saw a huge um, a huge part of why I wanted to train is because I love to be competitive. I like to go out there and have a crack and do well and all those types of things. But I never wanted to sacrifice my longevity or health for a gold medal that took me six years to achieve. I never wanted to be so badly buckled by the time I was 50 or 60 years old where I hear I heard about all these guys who were you know 25 30 years older than me just saying wait until you're my age and you won't be able to do this and do that and do this I was just like I want to prove that wrong so bad yeah, so yeah. I took into my own hands the things that I thought that could naturally maximize my ability to bounce back and recover keep my tendons healthy keep my ligaments healthy keep my body mobile, um, you know, doing breath practices and things like that to help maximize that load. And these are all the types of things that you can implement into a lifestyle that does kind of remove those handbrakes or, you know, the buildup effect of just stress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the thing. It's like 
removing the handbrake, taking away the sources of inflammation, taking away just understanding some of the allergies and intolerances and that sort of stuff, and taking away the burden, taking away. And this is where I got to that point, finding these handbrakes, and I'm always taking things away. Mm. And then I hated starting a protocol with an avoid list. Yeah. Like avoid this, avoid this. So I just become obsessed with trying to find the positives and things that we can say, work this into your day. Mm. Add these in. Here's a list of foods I need you to eat. Mm. If you're still hungry after this, I'll be surprised. You know, <laughs> so, But we need to eat these things. And then it was always about do this, more of this, more positivity, a little bit of something every day. Mm. I think it's consistency is more important. I'm at that age now, like mid-40s, where um, 10 years ago um, I wanted to have children. My children are now seven and eight. But when my kids were babies, I was so fat and I was so inflamed and I was so sick. And I was trying to do like all the keto stuff and, you know, yeah. like all the naturopathic things. Yeah. Avoiding everything I thought was I was allergic to and intolerant to. And it was all avoid, avoid, avoid. And, you know, you're, you're this way because you didn't work hard enough and you're on all that angst and aggression. Sure. All I wanted to do, because I used to love my footy and that, all I wanted to do was kick the footy with the kids. Yeah. And I wanted to be able to walk them to school. I wanted to run around the backyard, be light healthy i want to be able to swim in the pool mm. but i mean at that point in time i had this weird reactive arthritis i couldn't even walk my kids to school so my kids when they're in daycare you know like four and five years of age i couldn't walk th- they could do the walk no problem and then run and play all day i as an adult could hardly do that walk without being bedridden for days after it wow. just with the agony and there's no way i could ever kick a ball because wow. my feet were so inflamed and sore so that's when i went through and went on to this God, this is just wrong yeah. like i've done all this avoiding i've done all this angst i've done all this aggression i'm just inflamed and attacking my own body with these autoimmunity sort of arthritis crazy stuff and the mental stuff as well yeah that depressions and all that and then the imposter syndrome yeah you know, being a naturopath in this yeah. one you know? yeah so then eventually it's just like enough's enough so i went through and just did basically worked out how to change my life um for me as an omnivore and that sort of stuff, not a vegan or a plant. I'm plant-based. Mm. As a naturopath, I'm obsessed with yeah. herbs and spices, and I love my vegetables and all that sort of stuff. So most of what I eat is plants. Mm. But I just had to structure that and create a plan that allowed me to lose that weight um, by changing my lifestyle, not having to pick a, an extreme. I didn't have to go from my meat eating to like vegan or something to be plant-based and understand the power of plants Mm. in my body Mm. and change my lifestyle and now all of you know lose that weight now i can run i can play i can kick do all those things i wish i could do that i couldn't do mid-30s yeah but now i can heading towards 50 Mm. i can actually do it better than ever Mm. and i'm so fired up to think from 35 to 45 i can get this much healthier and happier and increase my life and longevity significantly Mm. so from 45 to 55 i believe i still in my best is yet to come yeah and now that we're learning so much more now i'm understanding how our little microscopic allies Mm. can actually be the cause of this to to, for us to get into that thrive mode and away from that imbalance which in naturopathic medicine that's what we talk about is dis-ease yeah it's like everything like a dis-ease is a combination of signs and symptoms that's been given a name. Mm. But, I mean, the process of it is you're, you're out of balance, yep. you're out of whack, and it starts to manifest symptoms. Yep. Most of this dis-ease comes from deficiency or toxicity. 
Right. Half the time we, we work out where your deficiencies and toxicities are and we balance that out yeah. and we can remove a lot of dis-ease. Yeah. The rest of it's within the holistic system. How's your priorities? Mm. Are you actually incorporating everything you need into your lifestyle to be balanced? And if not, then you're going to be out of ease. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah. It's super interesting for me because bit a bit about me and a bit of my background here for the listeners is so I grew up um, I started playing soccer when I was f- four years old. Was terrible. Was not a good soccer player at all. And I know you played soccer too. I was terrible. I was the worst. I never kicked a, a goal in my life. I think the first time I kicked a goal was I had a day in maybe year 11 where we went out and played soccer and I just chucked my hand up for anything that I could do to get out of a day of school. Right. And someone set me up, just the easiest goal in the world. And so I finally got one, but it took a long time. But... <laughs> So I started out when I was four years old playing soccer, played that for two or three years, three years, I think. Was never any good. I moved to Adelaide when I was eight years old and I got into little athletics. And then for the listeners that are in America, like track, pretty much track. Yeah. When I say athletics, they're just like, what type of athletics? I'm just like, oh, it's like track and field. Yeah. <laughs> so you go to these days on a Sunday morning and you basically, we had a rotation. So you had week A, week B. And so when you go to little athletics on a Sunday morning, Week A would be 70-meter sprint. You might do a, a 400. Then you would do high jump and shot put and maybe one other event. On week B, you do all the other events that you didn't get to do. So you might do the 200 and the 800. And then you might do triple jump and discus or javelin. Yep. So every week you had opposing things. And the very first week I went out there with my dad, he said, I want to get you kids to go out and experience little athletics i loved it as a kid i was like okay great this is going to be super fun and i'm one of five kids so there was lots of us to go so it was my older brother who was 11 months older than me my younger sister um four years younger my other younger sister six years younger than my other younger brother eight years younger so we went out there and my first week was horrendous i came last in the 70 meter sprint did terrible at the high jump did terrible at everything else and i left there thinking dad I don't want to go back there like I just don't want to do it like like I don't want to go there and just get beaten and everything and um he said oh I think you should go out for another go give another go and so we went back the next week and I had a friend of mine who I'd recently just met at school because I just moved to Adelaide she was out there as well and her dad was there too and her dad came up to me and by the way this girl also went to the Olympics and was probably one of our best ever track cyclists of all time, yeah, right. Steph Morton. Yeah, wow. So Steph Morton's dad said to me when I was eight years old, he said, I watched your race last week, and he said, you were looking all over the shop, you weren't looking straight down the line, you, you were hunched over. He said, this is what I want you to focus on, just two things. I just want you to look at a spot beyond the line at the end of the 70-meter, 100-meter sprint that we had, and um, I want you to stay upright. He said, don't look left or right. And so I did that. Out of nowhere, just I won this race and that was it. That yeah, was the one thing right. that just got me hooked on winning. Like I wanted to be competitive after that and everything. And that transitioned not just from 70-meter sprint, but made me want to be competitive in high jump yeah, and shot put. Bumps there. That's crazy, yeah. And everything. It changed everything for me. And I went through to the point where I said to Dad, I was just like, how can I get good? at shot put, how can I get good at high jump? How can I get good at javelin and discus and the running events? So my dad set me up all these little things in the backyard that I could practice on. So he got this fishing rod. 
to get better at high jump. He got this fishing rod and he hung it off the back of the pergola. Yeah. And it had a little um, like alligator clip at the end and he put this little bit of, um, it was like uh, plastic on the end of it and he clipped it there and he said, oh, I want you to run up like you would, you're going to do a high jump and I want you to run up and touch it. And if you can run up and you can touch it this many times, I want you to wind the fishing rod up a little bit more. So I went and did that until I got to the point where I couldn't touch it and, you know, I'd keep practicing until I could. So I got my high jump going better. He got me a five kilo shot put, I reckon, and I just threw shot put in the backyard. And then um, he marked out like a 400 meter track in the street. Um, so we did a 400 meters, 400 meter track. And I'm just like, when you come home from work and I finish school, can you like force me to go out there and go and train? And he's like, no. Nah. He goes, if you want to do it, uh -huh. you'll do it yourself. And I thought, oh, why isn't he like, wasn't he <laughs> helping me to do this? Yeah. But then I think that really transitioned into me making the decision myself. If I want something, I'm going to have to do it. I have to be self-motivated to get this stuff done. So coming from there, that's where I started. Like Little Athletics was the foundation of why I started becoming competitive and wanting to win. And then from there, I went to like states and things like that and competed there. And I wasn't the best. Like I would, I think the best placing I got was in the running events was a, a fourth in the 400 meters at States. Although I think my dad said, he, d he remember watching this 400 meter race and I s sold my soul. I was buckled. <laughs> I remember still to this day running that 400 meter race and thinking to myself in the back hundred, you are running as fast as you possibly can. You cannot go any faster than this. So when you look back on it and you think, did I have anything left? I can say with 100% certainty, I had yeah. nothing more to give. Yeah. And dad still thinks I came third. Yeah, he even went and made a made a complaint and said, yeah. I, "I think you need to look back at that." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I got fourth. But <laughs> then I won a gold in the shot put, and I got a silver in high jump. So, wow. Traditionally, I was kind of better at some of the other things, even though I was like, probably the smallest kid there. Very yeah. skinny, very small, but decent technique. Worked on my technique a lot, but you know, just maybe just power from like hips to extremities was good. Maybe yeah, just had yeah. good control there. So, anyway, that set the platform for being competitive. Then from there, I transitioned into rugby league in Adelaide, unheard of. Yeah, I bet. But the thing, that, the thing that made a big, big difference, especially at that age and low skill, and it still is to this day, even at NRL level, and even if you played in top level anything, usually the one foundation of being a good player or someone who can put points on the board is speed. Yep. So I was fast for a young kid, then everybody caught up to me when we got to puberty. Yep. I just watched my... I watched... So... As a young kid, my brother was faster than me. Then when I got into athletics and I, I learned the whole look down the line thing, keep my back straight, ended up beating my brother. Yeah. But then come year eight, year nine, out of nowhere, he just, he goes, oh, I think I would get you in a race these days. And I was like, man, dude, I've been crushing it. Like th when I was eight, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, crushing it. Yeah. And then we had a race and he flogged me oh. and I was devastated. Yeah. And I've just be. never been able to catch back up. <laughs> really? Even with all the training I've done. He Is was, that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he just natural ability to be a fast runner. Yeah. So I adapted to rugby league very early on, found I had a good ability to adapt there and, and being quick. You could put points on the board. You put points on the board. You were very valuable to the team. Ended up getting really stuck into that. And when I've got something in the head, I'd go for it. Um, so ended up playing... Uh, rugby league state carnivals got picked in like junior Australian team under 15s and 18s and then moved around playing football and that's kind of when I stumbled upon CrossFit and then obviously fell in love yeah, with right. that and then so did you 
resign uh, retire from the footy because you could have been professional like you could have gone yeah well yeah one day i kind of woke up and all i wanted to do every day was just i wanted to play professionally i wanted to play in the nrl that's all yeah, i wanted to yeah. do until i was about 20 who was your team anyway I went for the Sharks. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah beach kid, I suppose. Yeah. Well, <laughs> basically, Dad just said one day, who do you go for? And I just yeah. said, I don't know, can you name a couple of teams for me? And yeah. he was just like, oh, you know, Canberra Raiders, like, uh, North Queensland Cowboys, yeah. um, Parramatta Eels, uh, Bulldogs. And then he said the Sharks. And I was like, yeah, Sharks. Yeah. That's yeah. it. That's the oh, one. That's so funny. Sharks are cool. Yeah, go oh, for Oh, so them. when you're born in Queensland, it doesn't work that way. These are the teams you're allowed to support. <laughs> and if you're not those teams, these are the players you're allowed to support because you're a Queenslander. Yeah, yeah. And most of the listeners from overseas won't even know what rugby league is. Yeah. But it's like the greatest game of all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, we, we do little athletics. I found the other day, we're going through my kids' photos and found all the little pieces of paper with all the timings. Still got them. On it for our still got them. Have you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd actually ask my mum about that. My sister used to race against, like, so we now little athletics in Mackay was like Kathy Freeman and that was the yeah. so my sister used to be the running against Kathy Freeman wow but I used to play cricket red green colorblind I sucked my dad was like super coach for soccer and I yeah. played soccer for six years and I seriously sucked I think it was I hit 100 kilos when I was 15 and then they said let's just go play rugby yeah. you're a rugby player yeah <laughs> and then right. I felt confidence came up then yeah <laughs> yeah well I guess tacking on from that um just a quick brief um so my CrossFit career has been basically what I've based the last better part of 10 years on um I guess some achievements there for me um started out uh going to uh regionals which is like nationals in my second year and placed ninth and then came back the next year came 11th Came back the next year, came fourth wow. by a couple of seconds to one of my good mates, Carl Porter. He oh, beat yeah. me by a couple of seconds, and he took took the spot to the games in 2014. Yeah. Had a few, like I had a broken wrist, I fell fell over. All my all my injuries come from falling over and just silly mistakes. Um, so 2015 wasn't a great year. 13th, and then 16, I came back. Um, 116, 117, 118. Um, oh, sorry, second in 16, 117, 18, 19. And then my best overall placing, so all up, best overall placing in the CrossFit Games was fifth in 2019, so fifth fittest on earth, they would call That's it or crazy, define it, hey. um, which is basically for us, it's just being as well-rounded as you possibly can, being able to adapt to different tasks at any given time. So no matter if you've been given a task that you haven't exactly trained for, you've trained areas around something like that that you can then adapt it to and being able to figure this stuff out on the fly. So being as strong as possible, in a 1RM, being able to run short distances quickly, long distances quickly, being able to swim and bike and handstand and ring muscle up. So basic gymnastics like, yeah. you know, like gymnastics for like three and four and five-year-olds and do them really efficiently. Yeah. Well, efficiently for what we do. It would never look exactly like a gymnast unless you've done gymnastics, but our aim of the game was just to be an overall adaptive athlete so you could basically put your skills to the test in whatever given circumstance possible. Yep. Um, and that's what I thrived on because I didn't like athletics as a kid just for the 100-meter sprint. I loved it for the shot put and the high jump and the throwing and everything around it. So I think I adapted to CrossFit very well because I liked being strong. I liked running fast. I liked getting in the water. I surfed a lot as a kid. So I just loved getting my hands on everything possible. So... Yeah, technically four times Australia's fittest man and 
fifth fittest on earth 2019, um, had qualified for the games in, in teams before as well, um, never went as a team. And then in and around that, um, been to the Invitational, which is like world yeah. teams, which is basically USA versus Canada versus Australia versus Europe. Competed in that twice as part of the team, which was probably the most fun I've had a competition in my life. Yeah, And um, we ended up winning the last one that they held in 2018 here in Melbourne. And uh, that was one of the most um, fun three-hour cross like experiences I've had in in competing. But I guess the the idea of it is to maximize your performance um, across all these things. Okay, how do we do that? How do we how do we make sure that we are strong without sacrificing speed? How do we be fast without sacrificing long distance aerobic endurance? How do we do all that? and still maintain power, how do we do that and maintain flexibility? How do we do that and increase coordination and accuracy? Mm. And how do we do all these things? And it's basically taking two ends of the spectrum. You've got someone who runs a marathon like Kipchoge who can run it in two hours. And then you've got Eddie Hall who can deadlift 500 kilos. And then we're trying to bring those parameters or those boundaries that we've set as the two ends of the spectrum and finding someone who can run a marathon in under three hours, but then also deadlift over 300 kilos. So not you're never going to be Kipchoge. You're never going to be Eddie Hall. But how far can we get? How far can we take someone to run that fast and lift that heavy? And then not just endurance, but then also be that quick over 100 meters yeah. and also not just be that type of strong, like deadlift static strong. Yeah. But then also Olympic lifting. How how heavy can we clean and jerk? How heavy can we snatch? How far can we throw this shot put and just do all these different things? And basically then if you look at it instead of just these two parameters or boundaries, look at it as a circle. And it's just like, okay, how far can we get out there? How far can we get out yeah, there? How far can we get out there? The challenge that I always had working, so as a naturopath, trying to create supplement protocols and like get your anatomy physiology working at the optimal for those sports, had its own unique challenges in itself in the sense that all those things you mentioned, you've got to go do a whole heap of lifting yep. for reps and then run. Yeah. Now, the challenge, so for the vasodilation and the pump, so like if I'm dealing with a power lifter or a bodybuilder or something like that where they just need a couple of reps or they just want massive amount of pump in that muscle to make it look good or whatever, you can't function after that. <laughs> and so weirdest thing, it was like trying to chop and change the supplement protocols to be specific to the individual because different body types would um, get different types of pump and different level of vasodilation. You know, we work with people like Cara Saunders and they have such a very different body type mm. and that sort of stuff. So you can imagine how one body type can get off a bike or something in a triathlon and their legs just don't function because mm. they're so pumped. Yeah. And then they've got to try to run or something like that, you know. So those sort of things, um, that's again when we're talking about removing the handbrakes. Mm. When we make products and when we try to create supplement protocols, diet protocols and that for, for athletes, those protocols will change depending on the sport, the timing of supplementation. So a lot of the stuff I'd give to a bodybuilder as a pre-workout to maximise pump and vasodilation and that sort of stuff for the maximal amount of hypertrophy in the muscles you would never do that for a CrossFit mm. because you're going to get in the way of their reps. Yep. They're not going to be competitive, but also it's a totally different sport. Mm. Then we need to look at the brain function. You know, we might need someone to be hyped up 
you know, fired up and angry. And another person needs to be zen mm. and calm and mm. full of self-love. Yeah. And so they're all the little handbrakes that you've got to remove. Now, a certain amount of those are handbrakes that we can educate people on, you know, through these sort of podcasts. So they can create their own supplement programs and timing of the supplements and the dose. Once you understand how they work, mm. what the intended purpose is, how to feel, how they're supposed to make you feel, you can kind of work out for your particular sport or lifestyle when or when you do or don't put it in. Um, and But otherwise, we can help educate on those sort of things for people as well. So they're the sort of things we're going to be doing on this podcast is bringing in yeah. athletes from different sports, yep. scientists from different areas, yeah. and new discoveries and showing that sort of stuff because a lot of it is simply a certain amount. I hate to say it, but a lot of it's trial and error. Absolutely. Yeah. And the thing is, and I think we can both, um, because I'm 100% plant-based, I've been vegan since 2019, um, and I'll go into more depth in in that and what my performance looks like now post that, um, which is, you know, basically the same, obviously priorities are elsewhere, but what we can do is like, we have an overlap here where we can find some common ground and share some stories around that and get these experts in to talk about, Hey, how does this, like, where does, where does this all stem from? And it, is it, you know, if we can control, um, you know, the microbiome a little bit better, understand it a little bit better, and a lot of information is coming out so recently about it. If we can control that, how much more can we take the end of the spectrum for performance? But the way that I like to look at it is the performance that an elite athlete is looking for and the performance that, say, someone who just, um, you know, is, you know, not fixated on being the world's greatest athlete but they want to be the best at their job or they want to be the best mum or the best dad or you know just live healthily yep. we're doing the things that i would promote as an elite athlete to other athletes is the same thing that i would promote to someone just wanting to be healthy and to live and to have longevity it's just a different degree of intensity that you would do it to so when we used to train um some of the, the hardest days of training i did with tia were Saturdays we would spend all day in the gym leading up to the CrossFit Games because we wanted to be adapted to just being in this one place all day long. So instead of spending 10 hours in the gym um, as an elite athlete, for someone else I would say you would benefit from you know introducing one very small five-minute breathwork protocol in the morning or at nighttime or both um, that doesn't detract from, you know, getting the kids ready for school, getting to work on time, being the best you can be during your work day. For the athlete, I would say, okay, you're going to definitely do these at least morning and night. Mm. You might even do one during the day after a workout. You also need to be so um, pinpoint with how much hydration you have. You need to make sure you're eating enough. All these things I would recommend to an everyday person who just wants to maximize all those other areas of their life. But it's like, okay, you might only have to do it in the morning and maybe not at night time if you don't have time or if you're busy and you've got other things to prioritize as an athlete you you're selfish in a sense that you have to prioritize yourself and those things to be at top one percent in the world so the things that we're promoting are the same it's working in and working out i think everyone should do that um it's nutrition it's hydration it's sleep um, these things we can elaborate on much, much more because there's so much that goes into the recovery side of things as well as the training side of things. But I do agree when you are 
creating a protocol for a bodybuilder or a crossfitter or a triathlete, they're all going to be somewhat different. As a crossfitter, that's my specialty there, is that we had to train as if we were doing each one of these sports and then it's solely. So when we did a, when we're leading up to a regionals of the CrossFit Games, we were rolling a weightlifting specific program, an Olympic weightlifting specific program. And we would do it the same way an Olympic lifter would do it. But then we were expected to, in ourselves, we expected ourselves to then be able to go out and run an 18 minute 5K. And you don't do that just straight off the bat. It takes years of training to get to that point to be able to. You're training. You're training a lot of the time to be able to handle the training, mm. yeah. like the next year. And it's not just that one year of training that leads into doing well that year. It's that year, the next year, the next year that leads into handling the volume for that fourth year, where you maximize results. Yep. And that consistency. That is one of the things that is. Um, Shared across the board, you know, regardless. And so, so like I'm saying, you can be an elite athlete. The most important thing for you in your preparation is the consistency of your training. You could be hitting your midlife crisis and getting into that longevity aspect. The most important thing for you is consistency. Always. And the predisposition to injuries as we age, um, if we just have this low-grade inflammation that's coming from a bad diet, um, from bad gut health, um, a lower level of hormone, um, stress and immune activation. It's just a constant source of low-grade inflammation and all aspects of ageing are inflammatory. So then all of a sudden you go on angst and aggression in the gym and try to hit this intensity to punish yourself because you haven't been going well enough or often enough or you've been eating the wrong foods. Then you injure yourself and you have time off. Mm. It's just it's pointless. Mm. So the point is, as a big part of what our education and lifestyle stuff will be doing and a lot of our products as well, are going to be supporting people to be consistent with their goals and consistent with their plans, have less days off. Mm. So that way we can work towards, you know, getting the results that we deserve for our efforts. Absolutely. As opposed to going like all and then nothing. Oh, and it's the biggest, that's the biggest gripe that I have is that you'll have someone who starts this new training program and they're so intent on making it the, this is it, this is going to be the thing, it's going to change everything. They'll go so hard on it for two or three days, four days a week, and then they have to take a break for another week because they don't get, they they hurt themselves, they yeah. burn out, they don't want to do it anymore because it's they've gone way too hard on it. Whereas if you took it from a, a standpoint, I need to be consistent here, and you know maybe most of my training shouldn't be done at one hundred percent intensity, yeah. and I should just tone it down a bit so I can be more consistent, and then build that tolerance as time goes on. You'll last longer. You'll have less injuries. You'll be a better performer. And you'll figure out exactly where you need to be at any particular time. And you become very intuitive. And this is one of the key things here as well, is learning and teaching yourself how to be intuitive with how your body feels and what it feels like it needs. Um, that was like when anyone asked me about nutrition, it's like, oh, how do you when to know to have this much and this much? And it's like, well, it's just intuitive feeling. Yeah. I just I feel like I know when I want to have more protein or more carbohydrates or I feel like I really need some extra greens in today or I need um, – have lacked in water the last couple of days because I've been flat chat. I really need, need, need to make that a priority. No one's perfect and we yeah. don't know it all. Yeah. So I think that intuition and that the number one key thing for everyone that I talk about is consistency. Yep. If like, talk, look at Michael Phelps, for instance. This guy, I listened to him talk um, in Baltimore once and he spoke about 
consistency and he trained every day for five years straight. Didn't take one day off. Even when he got run down, he had a day where he got run down and I'm sure he had a few and he didn't feel that great. Felt like something was coming on and he still got in the pool that day. He swam at 60% and he did half the session at 60%. But the thing that he did was he just got in the pool. Sometimes... 90% 90% of the whole thing is just rocking up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like just getting in there. we acquire resilience and we acquire and we adapt. The, the whole muscle gain, fat loss, um, technique improve. they're all, it's all an adaptation game. Mm. It's all about stressing the system and forcing some sort of an adaptation, whether that's making more mitochondria as energy warehouses per cell, whether that's building more fascia and collagen to reinforce an area that's a weakness, whether it's actually allowing more of that brain activity and muscle-mind connection for something that you've neglected. A lot of those things come when you're in your exhausted phase or when you do that, the slowdown phase. Because like I said earlier, you're either in survive mode or thrive mode. And if you're stuck in survival, you're not going to be thriving you know, you basically be trying to get through the day. And on those days, you want to come back, take a step back and learn some lessons and learn what you're capable of doing or learn symmetry or learn to calibrate and, and, and learn something else that's not about pushing that intensity. And you can always learn and then your body uses that as, as a different form of adaptation and improves your resilience. And that's yeah. the main difference between a, a successful elite athlete because, again, that's inconsistency in results. Yeah is your ability to get a consistent result, is your ability to be resilient and adapt and everything like that, which is why I love those sports like CrossFits and the Spartan stuff and all those ones that just kind of, you have no idea what's happening. It's like, kick it to me, I'll Mm. have a go. Yeah. Run off my hip, I'll make you famous. Let's do this Whatever it is, you know, let's have a go. No, I love that. And the the cool thing about it is I've never seen a high-end Olympic top level top tier athlete in the world that wasn't consistent yeah you've never seen someone who's like maybe not consistent in results but consistent in their training approach yep. everything that they do is there's some type of consistency there and some type of structure you've never seen someone who just you know wings it and then just wings it and wings it and wings it and wings it you know yeah. um, there's a consistency somewhere and you just need to figure out where those things need to lie and where you need to bring you might be consistent here and here and here but you might suck here, yeah. here, and here. Okay, yeah. how do I get those things up there yeah. too? But it's the same in all aspects of life. There's sport. You, you can take a lot of the lessons we learn from sport across to business and home life or relationships or whatever. If you have a look at some of the – a lot of the naturally gifted athletes that we know as children that we compete with in school that shatter our confidence and stuff like that, mm. a lot of them never even make it no. to that thing because it's just not their thing. It just comes natural. It was easy. It was something they're doing just when they're playing and having fun. Um, you know, people like John Eels or uh, Michael Jordan and mm. they couldn't make their high school team. Yeah. But then become the greatest in their chosen sport just through consistency because a lot of those other naturally gifted athletes that didn't have to work for it just disappeared and phased mm. off. These guys that were passionate, that loved it and were consistent ended mm. up becoming the greatest through consistency, mm. not just through these one-off, you know, exactly. things. Exactly. Like I play golf every time. I play terribly. But every time I play golf, I pull off at least one or two shots that makes me think I have potential yeah. <laughs> to be the greatest golfer in the I world. I do the same <laughs> thing. And to be honest, the last time, a couple of times I've gone out and done a round of nine, I have not hit one good shot. Uh, go no. to the driving range and yeah. just smoke them at the driving range and then yeah. go out and play a game and I can't hit one yeah. straight. But I suck. 
like I say, I would never because I am not consistent. Yeah. I, the only thing I'm consistent with is at least three putts, like three to five putts every time. It's yeah. Really insane. But so that's the thing. It's like consistency will get you a result. Now, with our life and our body, and we talk about consistency mm. and we talk about balance, but man, nature is not that that kind i mean nature doesn't do that nature just is a lot of slap and tickle in nature yeah so you might think i can be consistent with my sport and i might go through and i can if when i eat this for breakfast i eat this for lunch i eat this for dinner i take these supplements that's when i compete at my best mm. and then all of a sudden that thing stops working mm. because what we realize is nature doesn't work that way nature has seasons we have seasonal variation in our foods and our diets. Our microbiome and our gut contents are supposed to change and cycle. If we are too consistent with our diet and lifestyle, then we will build up a very um, not balanced, not diverse. Mm. You'll build up an imbalanced, bad microbiome that feeds on that only food you eat. Yep. And so it's kind of crazy that you want to be consistent with your training. Mm. But part of that adaptation is the ability to actually chop and change what you're eating throughout the year to match with the season. So you can always be eating locally and fresh and in season. Mm. And man, when you start to realize that our microbiome has this ability to modify your, your hormones, your metabolic rate, your microbiome can determine your calorie yield. Like, I mean... We can have an overgrowth of particular firmicutes, for example, and you can have an increased calorie yield of about 20% wow. of carbohydrates, more 20% more carbohydrate absorption, you know, just from a particular colony of bugs. Wow. Those same bugs could be making branched-chain amino acids. They could be using as fuel. Like So when you go through the seasons where we've got less protein and we've got more sugars available, the bugs that feed on those sugars can actually make the branched-chain amino acids you need to spare your muscle mm. when you're in the lower level of protein seasons. Right. You know, it's like crazy to think how we have this gut microbiome that needs to be constantly changed mm. to be able to be consistent. And also, I guess, <laughs> eating foods, uh, like you said, that actually um, the types of foods that can keep those gut bugs in check yeah so eating like peels yeah. and things like that that will technically poison off too much of a bad or too much of a good bug yeah because even too much of a good bug can be a bad thing right oh absolutely i mean i mean our poo we have about 20 10 to 20 percent of the dry matter of our stools i just had to adjust my stool <laughs> that i'm sitting on as i'm doing that but 20 but 10 to 20 percent of the dry matter of our stools is actually dead bugs Right. Uh, overflowing bugs we have typically we have too many yeah most people have too many and part of that's because of the consistency of our diet yeah for example man growing up i was one of those people trying to be really healthy even though i got really fat but i'd have my wheat mix mm. and milk oh so did I'd i have, so my wheat mix and milk and my sugar mm. and that sort of yeah, stuff yeah, for yeah. and don't forget i'm north queensland i come from cane country so cane yeah. sugars i support your local yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? so we're getting into the cane show we do that sort of thing for brekkie we'd have the sandwiches and the muesli bars and the poppies for lunch because we're the healthy kids you yeah, know yeah, yeah and then we'd have our banana and our apple every day or a mandarin um and then we'd come home from school and we'd have toast or muesli bars and more breads and that sort of stuff and then for dinner we'd have our meat and three veg mm. you know and that was a very healthy person mm. in the, growing up in the 80s yeah. and 90s in australia that was, that was good, probably as good as what we, i was pretty much sponsored by uncle toby <laughs> um but that basic consistency of that diet just kind just keeps dragging you down the wrong pathway mm. and it allows you to build up a maybe you get a you got a balanced diet mm. but it's not a varied diet mm. 
And if you consider what we have a 500 to 1,000 different species of microbes that live in our guts, um, ten times, somewhere between one to ten times, depending on which book you read, yep. you know, cells live in our guts as there are whole cells of our whole body. But 500 to 1,000 different species, they all feed on different stuff. So to be able to maintain that variety, the varied microbiome, the diversity, mm. which is the most important. We don't want too many of the same bugs. We want a diverse, lots of little bugs, but we also don't want the little buggers to overgrow mm. because they're there helping us to create nutrients. We'd say that help us to create they give a shit about us. Yeah. They create the nutrients for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so if you get an overgrowth of bugs, I mean, they'll be creating excessive nutrients, but they can also compete with you for those nutrients and those foods. And mm. there are... a bug um and if they're already somewhere between one to ten times as many as those your immune cells are measuring saying man there's a fair chance at any moment these bugs could come across this wall we're all screwed you know? yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so there's this constant immune surveillance which is a constant source of inflammation yep i mean lipopolysaccharide is a compound that we use in studies to make things inflamed we go and find something and put lipopolysaccharide it just goes red and inflamed mm-hmm. so lipopolysaccharide is actually a bacterial cell wall it's not good or bad bugs. It doesn't care. It's just a broken bug. Creates lipopolysaccharide. The body has to respond with some inflammation to that. And that's a stress. Mm. So too much of a good thing is a constant source of inflammation from your gut. So having that varied diet where we have regular poisons in the form of polyphenols and tannins. And most of these poisons are found in the plants. Um, and typically the outer leaves or the skins or the peels or they'll be protecting the seeds and that sort of stuff because the microbes that live in the soil, same as the microbes that live in our gut, they want to feed on the sugar in our plants. And to get to the sugar in the plants, which sits normally right in the centre, they've got to get through the barks and the skins and all that sort of stuff to get it. So the colours and the smells and the fragrance and all the lovely stuff like that and that astringency, the tenons mm. that we get from the coloured parts that live on the outside, that's where all the poisons are that stop the bugs from getting to too much sugar. So when we eat those foods in their whole food form, we're supposed to be getting a little bit of sugar, but the fibre contains the polyphenols, which is where the colours and everything and the flavour is, and that's the magic. That's what we need. We need the fibre and the polyphenols to balance out the sugar. Mm. Otherwise, you're just too much sugar yeah. and not enough of the old yeah. poison. Then so they just overgrow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. And and over the course of time, we've obviously gotten to the point where we're just not eating these things anymore, right? And that's when we're yeah. starting. Well, part of it's food choices. Sure. I mean, part of it's um, food processing. I mean, polyphenols, within 14 days, they're down by 80%. Wow. So they disappear really quickly. Right. Because they're the things that give the colour and the fragrance and the smell, the freshness yeah. that you pick up. From yeah. it, you know? well, so they're gone. Um, but also our food has changed because we're trying to avoid the fibery sort of stuff. Well, the, well we're not trying to, we, we were told to eat like more fibre and people will fortify foods with fibre. Mm. But they're removing the colours and the flavours from the fibre. So that way you can have your white bread that's still high fibre. Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah. So the problem is, is now we get our grapes that are seedless and really thin skins and things have changed. We don't have the same degree of pulp mm. in our stuff. And that pulp is where we have all the polyphenols. Yeah. And then we, you know, we might get into a phase of juicing where we're actually throwing away more and more of the fibre and polyphenols where we should be eating the whole thing to be able to control the microbiome, you know? So there's so many things 
in society where we kind of make the right moves, but it's almost perfect, and then we kind of like yeah, compromise alter a little yeah. bit because it just doesn't taste. It's not as commercial or something. Sure, it goes know, away so. from nature a bit. Well, that's probably a good lead into talking about fermented foods, and I wanted to touch on this because we want to make this much as about education as possible, but I do want to touch on something that we're creating together here, yeah. which is basically where – so our first – product that we're bringing to market um, is a plant protein um, and it is a food that we've created along with some professionals in this space or some some high-end yeah. smart smart dudes um, to create a, a protein that is actually healthy for the gut yeah yeah so something that doesn't you know it, it reduces it I guess basically all we're trying to do is create something that you can have um, to bump up your protein but also create a, a wholesome, um, diverse um, microbiome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one of the challenges too is that, like we talk about, is that the variation in the diet. It's so important for people to cycle their diet. But every time we do make a change to our diet and our exercise and lifestyle, we'll get a change to our microbiome. And that change to our microbiome might be a die-off, and when they die off, it creates a thing called a Herxheimer reaction, which is like some guy named it after himself, burp and fart and gurgle and nausea. You know, yeah, that's right. the stuff as they die off. Imagine being known as that guy. <laughs> anyway, um, so you get to die off. But sometimes it's just a shift as you grow on new bugs and other ones are kind of fighting back and trying to tell you that they crave things that they miss. You know, like if your guts are full of the bugs that feed on lactose, which is typically firmicutes, lactobacillus-style ones, um, acidophilus ones, you know, they'll actually tell you to crave milk and you want that way or you want that those you're craving those high calorie you know sort of things so as they're dying off and as we changing onto a plant-based diet or when people introduce a new protein typically your guts go a little bit funny mm. now that's just the changeover so what we realized is what has to happen is once you acquire the right microbiome to digest those new foods you stop reacting to it Okay, because these microbiome, they start creating the enzymes that are necessary to break it down. They start creating the acids and the enzymes and creating the right environment and supporting the gut wall and the mucosa. And that's how the microbiome changes to allow you to have these good foods. Mm. Okay, but well, you go funny. through a transition. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's funny because the only thing that I ever had an issue with um, when I first uh, transitioned to a completely 100% plant based diet was a chickpeas. Yep. But I had some chickpeas. I felt a little bit gassy and a bit bloated. I did it one week, did it again the next week, and then like on the third week, nothing. It was yeah, fine. Yeah. So I was introducing them slowly but surely. We found a little bit of, you know, it wasn't super discomfort, but a little bit bloated yeah. from it. And I thought, well, maybe these just don't work with me. But I just kept trying anyway. And then I found it was no issue, and now I have zero issue with beans, lentils, chickpeas, all yeah. the things that people typically find, oh, that doesn't work for me. I kind of felt that for chickpeas, not for beans so much, not so much for lentils, but yep. it went away after about you know, two weeks. Yeah, so that's an excellent example. So within chickpeas, they have an anti-nutrient, which actually blocks the activity of amylase. And right. amylase is the enzyme that helps to break down the carbohydrates. So when you're not breaking down the carbohydrate in the chickpea, they move on and they become a source of fermentation for your bugs. And then your bugs want to ferment that stuff and do it. Now, the way the bugs do that is by making the enzymes 
as in the, what we call postbiotics. So I'll talk about that in a sec. But So the bugs will realise this food's coming in. In order to break that food down through the process of fermentation initially, they realise they need they can make these enzymes. So as you accumulate more of those bugs that make that enzyme, you acquire the ability to digest that food. Right. And then you become less intolerant to it, less reactive to it because you've broken it down. And that, But that same pathway has will aid the the digestion and absorption of the nutrients from a lot of foods within the same food category, that right. those same microbes. So you get a changeover. In your case, without a big die-off, so for example, if you had a massive overgrowth of gut bugs because you just were way too big or whatever, um, you had a massive overgrowth of those gut bugs and then you change your diet. If they died off, that's when these people go, oh, i got these pains, i got this stuff, it's a bit, you know, I feel sick and everything like that. But you didn't have that, so you acquired, you had space within your microbiome to grow new ones. Right. That could actually make it better to digest it. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I reckon this is like the topic of fermented foods and, and what we're coming out with yeah. I think is something that we can elaborate on for hours and hours and hours. Oh, but oh, what yeah. I think, you know, next time we... We take, have a sit down. Maybe we sit down with some of the um, the PhD microbiologist oh, yeah, guys yeah. and really just go in depth on to what fermentation is, yeah. how it can help us, how it can be a detriment, like w- the navigation oh, yeah. of the good and the bad, and then you know really just elaborate on that and just you know give the guys information on how this can be beneficial to someone who's looking for absolute elite performance or yeah. someone who's just looking to be healthier. And, uh, yeah, we can get stuck right into that as we go on. This is something I've been passionate about and trying to understand for the last 20-something years and talking to what I thought were, like, experts in the industry, you know, and trying to get my head around this thing. So many people are so biased with this ego that they just they can't look beyond a certain point in case what they everything they thought they knew was wrong. Yeah. Now, we hit a really weird precipice with science in the last five to ten years with that because... We had this big industry of the genomic people saying it's all in our genetic potential. And then they realized that, no, our genetic potential is pathetic. Um, then they went through and go, it's these probiotics, these, these live organisms. It's this ability to inoculate you with a bug that's going to change you. Then they realized, oh, gosh, these probiotics aren't actually even working that way. The probiotics are just going straight through. They're not living inside the person at all. Most of them are being killed and dying. Maybe it's the dead ones. Then they go back and go, well, well, how do we get into this thing looking at probiotics in the first place? And they go, well, we, we discovered these things in fermented foods. We knew fermented foods were fantastic. Then it turns out that fermented foods are probably better than the probiotics. Mm. They go, well, hang on, what else is in our fermented foods? Because if it's not the live organisms, maybe it's like the acids and the enzymes or maybe it's the polyphenols, maybe it's the stuff. So then what they realised is, what is a fermented food? is basically the live organisms that they inoculate the food with or that are naturally part of that food. And the food, the prebiotic. Yep, and then they spike it up with a little bit of fuel, which is a prebiotic, typically a sugar or a fibre or something that will get the bugs thriving. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is they ferment the the material, the plant material. They break down the anti-nutrients by making acids. Um, short-chain fatty acids and things like that, and they actually make the enzymes. The bugs themselves make the enzymes. Then they feed on that material, and some of that plant material they can use to make B12 or vitamin K. or They make all these nutrients. Like I mentioned earlier, these bugs are capable of making branched-chain amino acids even, which is like the holy grail for bodybuilders, you know, yeah, like yeah. build your muscle. But So these fermented foods, it turns out that what's the end result of a fermented food is a lot of 
acids, enzymes, polyphenol compounds, you know, heart, partially fermented prebiotics and fiber. But along with it is a lot of dead bugs. And they're finding the dead bugs, there's not much that a live bug can do that a dead bug with all of those acids and enzymes and everything can't do. Wow. And now they're realizing that, hang on, the variability between one man's medicine and another man's poison is basically how does our microbiome hijack our food and it can either take it down a good pathway or a bad pathway. Wow. And then through fermentation and on a lab, we can do that not inside your stomach, but we can custom create the food substrates with very specific microbiome or very specific microbes that are specifically target those type of foods. So, for example, if I've been eating omnivore, predominantly carnivore, you know, basically obsessed with my barbecue and beer mm. for like a decade like I was, mm. and then I quickly try to change to be this healthy plant-based diet, Oh, man, yeah. I went through hell Yeah, because I had all this die-off and then all of a sudden uh, these healthy foods are making me feel like crap with the oxalates, salicylates. I couldn't process this stuff. For me, they were like poison. Yep. So I went through a massive transition. These custom-made stuff takes out that variability. Yeah, so if you had that in the transition period, it probably would have made the process a bunch easier well, uh, for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something I did just in the last... You know, year. Mm. And something that was to, so you got to understand this is like people have to understand this. It was, I think it was August 2021. What are we now? I don't even know where. Oh, we're August 22. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So about a year ago, only one year ago, was when they actually managed to define the difference between a prebiotic, probiotic, symbiotic, and a postbiotic. Wow. And the funny thing is, they've gone all the way back to Hippoc Hippocrates saying that. All health begins in the guts and there's something special in these fermented foods. Mm -hmm. And then we, hundreds of years later, we get to this point, it took them a decade to get from the probiotics to the postbiotics even. Now we've gone all the way back to say, hang on, the end result of fermentation has everything we need. If these live bugs aren't coming in and creating these chemicals in our body, because it depends on what you're eating, what's inside you, are they living, is there already bugs already there that's competing with them? It just can't possibly work. Yeah. But if we take that variability away by doing it within a laboratory setting where we can custom make a fermented postbiotic matrix that's specific for that target food, then we can help the transition for people changing their diet. And then we can incorporate that back into the food. Wow. And, man, that's like next level. Health no changing. one's done that. Well. Maybe be the end the pioneering, <laughs> <laughs> pioneering end of that. So that's good. Yeah. So, look, I think um I don't know how long we've been going for now. About an hour. So yeah. maybe we wrap it up now. And um I think we've got a ton of talking points, especially oh, okay. especially towards performance in the microbiome and and for the people that we'll get on and chat to. But mm -hmm. man. Great first episode. Well, thank you. Oh, awesome. <laughs> we should do it again sometime. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Guys, well, thanks so much for joining in on, on the first ever Plant Podcast. Um, I'm James. This is Matt. And uh, we're looking forward to bringing you tons of education, um, tons of cool stuff. And we're going to we're gonna do some really funky stuff. There, there are a couple of ideas that I've had um, that will be good viewing for you guys, not just sitting here watching us talk like this, but we'll get some video footage of some crazy cool athletic feats and matt can break down exactly what he's torturing me with so um yeah we'll get into that soon but guys thanks again and uh we'll see you next time